Uh, Today we are stepping away from our current series in the book of Romans. Uh, Pastor Shane will return back to that, pick up in uh, chapter 9 of Romans uh, on the 24th of this month. I invite you this morning to turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, which traditionally is the sixth of seven uh, penitential psalms. Uh, On a certain occasion, Martin Luther was asked, what were the best psalms? And he replied by saying, Psalmi Paulini, or the Pauline Psalms, meaning those such as Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 143, and this one, Psalm 130, that teach us that the forgiveness of sins is by God's grace alone and never by good works. Also, it is a psalm that is a part of of that particular collection of psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 and classified as a song of ascents. You'll notice that heading there at the beginning of the psalm. Uh, Literally, it is a song from the steps. And one of the psalms sung in preparation for and along the way to one of the three great pilgrim feasts sung on the way up to Jerusalem. Let me begin by reading it for us. This is from the English Standard Version, Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Uh, You can almost feel the movement as this man goes from a fear of drowning in verse 1 to the calm of hope toward the end of the psalm. It's a psalm that starts in the lowest parts of despair, the, the lowest depths of despair, but one that progresses steadily upward until as Derek Kidner writes, at the end, there is encouragement for the many from the experience of the one. In this sense, Psalm 130 is is itself a song of ascents, climbing from the abyss of, of depression and despair to the high ground of steadfast hope and a settled rest, a quieted, immovable unwavering rest in the Lord. So how do you get there? How does a soul find peace and rest? How does a soul that's tossed and rocked by fear find rest? To find out, let's, let's track this progression in the psalmist's life and experience as we consider together four steps Four steps from despair to hope. 
Four steps from despair to hope. The first thing that we notice is the psalmist's, the psalmist's overwhelming despair. His overwhelming despair. Look again there at the opening phrase in verse 1. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The depths here is a term used to refer to the ocean depths, not, not the shallows, but the great deep ocean basins far from the coast. That place, for instance, beyond the continental shelf, where the depth of the water drops from a few hundred yards to two to three miles, even six miles in some places. It's known as the abyssal plain, where the water goes from that that clear, light blue color to that deep and dark blue. Now, the Hebrew people, generally speaking, were not a seafaring race, so for them, the ocean depths were a place of fear, a place of despair, a place where all hope was abandoned. In Psalm 69, verse 1, David wrote these words, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. Deep water and and terror and fear went together in the Hebrew mind. This is the image that the psalmist draws our attention to at the very beginning as he announces his despair and the desperation of his situation. The key here is that the psalmist speaks with candor about the reality of what is going on in his life. And unless you are willing to open your heart to the light of truth, you will never know the sweetness of grace and the sweetness of the rest that the psalmist eventually experiences. So he opens up his heart. He knows that he is exposed to the Lord. He says, I am crying out from the ocean deeps, like a sailor whose ship has gone down, and he's out there in the middle of the ocean, and it's only a matter of time before he loses all strength and goes under. Or like a mountain, mountain climber who's, who's out on the edge of a cliff holding onto a limb and the limb is starting to bend and making a cracking sound. It's that kind of cry for help and a sense of desperation. Which isn't new in the Psalms. In fact, it's, it's very normal. But typically in the Psalms, the cries for help are motivated by things like life-threatening circumstances or personal attacks. But here the psalmist is distressed by something quite different. He isn't being persecuted by political enemies, which was sometimes the case in the psalms, particularly penned by David. And he's not being trampled down by foreign invaders or oppressed by some some sort of injustice. There's something else that is tormenting the soul of this man. And it becomes clear in verse 3, that it's not literal waves that have produced this sort of fear. It's not real drowning, nor real ocean depths that have caused him to be terrified. It is the guilt of his sin. There he is, tossed by the waves of the raging sea, the waves of 
of pain and grief and the confusion of sin, his mind tormented by guilt, in over his head, in deep water. So he cries out, open your ears, God, I need help. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Here he addresses God as Adonai, speaking of that servant-master relationship. It's, It's like a servant requesting his master's or his Lord's attention. In fact, his desperation and the urgency of his despair comes out in the fact that he so repeatedly and so directly addresses the Lord. Nine times in the first four verses, he addresses God either directly by name using the term Yahweh, God's personal covenant name, or by title, Adonai, Lord, in reference to God's sovereign control over all things, or by personal pronoun. It's like a child who falls off of his or her bike and scrapes their their knee and they run in the house and as they're running, they're calling out, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. The repetition tells you the urgency of the need. So this man's cry is urgent. The cry of despair. No one can help him but God. And there's a sense that everything in the world goes away and everyone else's voice is out of his ears and it is he and he alone. Maybe you've been there or maybe you're there right now. The depths. This is trouble. There's ugliness. There is selfishness. There's pride. It is black and it is thick. Even as, as a Christian, you've, you've thought to yourself, you, you, you mean I have to go again? I have to confess again. I have to repent again? But your sin is crushing you down, knocking the breath out of you. And you know it. Even if others think that everything in your life is fine. It's clear in these verses that the psalmist knew that things weren't fine. Outwardly, he may have appeared to have it all together, but he knew his own life. He knew his thoughts. He knew his, his private actions. He may have even, even known the motivations for his public actions. He knew the temptations that, had, that he had given into in his mind and heart. Of course, of course, he looked at, at life on the outside, but, but he also looked at his moral stumblings. He looked at his life inwardly, and he cried out in despair. But why? Well, uh, not only did he know himself, but he also had a knowledge of God. And the combination of the two gripped his heart and and troubled his soul. Because the God that this man knew was the God of the Scriptures. 
God of the Bible. He knew self, he knew sin, but he also knew God, and he didn't believe that God is some some half-stooped, some half-blind, some half-deaf, grandfatherly figure that's just relaxing in the front porch swing, ready to, to hand out little candies to the children. He didn't see God as, as the one who many people prefer, as C.S. Lewis put it, one who likes to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe is simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day that a good time was had by all. But that's what a lot of people think about God, right? That he's just there to comfort me when I feel bad, to make life fun for me. Of course, God is good. We know that. God is, God is benevolent. God is kind. God is gracious. He is a God of joy. He is a God of love, as we just read about in 1 John 4. But the psalmist had a more complete understanding of who God is. That God is holy. Which means that God is different. He is unique. He is set apart. He is not like us. He is not like us in many ways. But one of the most significant ways that God is not like us is that he doesn't sin. There is no evil in him. No darkness. No sinful lust or desire. He cannot sin personally and he cannot tolerate sin in his creatures. He is utterly different. He is utterly distinct. He is utterly morally different. He is holy. So God doesn't mind his creatures enjoying themselves. In fact, he is the creator of joy. He is the creator of the sensations and the pleasures and the delights that bring us such joy. God wants us to experience joy, but he also wants us to follow his rules, his principles, his, his statutes, his commands. He's the creator of enjoyment and joy and pleasure, but he wants us to find those things within the guidelines that he has established. Whether it's marriage or whether it's food or eating or money, he, he wants us to enjoy the gifts that he's blessed us with, but he wants us to do it in his way. This was what the psalmist recognized. Not necessarily that he wasn't enjoying life, but that he had violated the rules. He had gone outside the boundaries. And consequently, he was plagued with guilt. He couldn't sleep at night. He may have tried at times to ignore those stabs of, of his conscience, but he could bear it no more. He was drowning in the ocean of his sin. He stepped across the line. Maybe he had been rebellious in his heart toward authorities in his life. Maybe he had coveted something that his neighbor had. Maybe he looked at a woman with, with lustful intent. Maybe he lied to his boss about why he was late to work. Or, or maybe he put his trust in his ability to make money rather than in God. Maybe he had done all of those things. What is sure is that he stepped across the line and he knew it. And all of those who come face to face with a holy God, who know that they have transgressed God's rules, 
who know that they have in many ways been self-reliant or self-righteous and self-seeking, anyone who truly sees God as holy and pure and glorious and then sees and knows their own sin comes to this place. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There's this crushing realization that no matter how we try to excuse our sin, God cannot and will not look past our rebellions. He cannot and will not just sweep them under the rug. And this is the dilemma that the psalmist was dealing with. Uh, Now, it's not a dilemma when you come face to face with the God of of your own imagination. Not, Not a God who is a little bit righteous or a little bit holy. Because a little bit of sin for a God that is a little bit holy isn't a big deal. But when you're dealing with the God of the Bible who is perfectly holy, then you end up in this place saying, God... If you keep a record of my sins, then I'm finished. Not just because of the nature of sin and how offensive one sin is to a holy God, because it only takes one, right? It only takes one for us to deserve his wrath. But also because of the number of sins, the amount of them. You'll notice it's not just iniquity. It's iniquities. Think about it. The number, the amount of times that we have offended God is so numerous. So the psalmist is distressed by even the smallest offense and also by the number of his offenses. But rather than, than, than habitually justifying his transgression against God's law, he opens up his heart. He sees the blackness of it, the darkness of it, and he cries out to God from the abyss. And this is what we must do. And we must do it for the same reasons that the psalmist did it. Because we understand that sin has an earthly troubling element to it. Uh, Because we understand that there's been a separation. We feel the distance. We sense it. It's not that God has moved away from us or, or, or that grace has ended. But this is the problem with, with modern Christianity. Some Christians have bought into the idea that we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at our sins because it, it might make you feel bad. Stop looking at your iniquity because, because it'll make you feel terrible. Who wants to feel terrible? But the psalmist says, not only is sin black, there is a sense of intimacy with God that is missing. A sense of intimacy lost, a sense of of divine silence. And you've got to confess. It's the only way to find rest in your soul. Because when you don't cry out and when you don't confess, you dry up. That's what happened in 
in David's life based on what he tells us in Psalm 32 and verse 3. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength, my, my vitality, my energy was dried up as by the heat of summer. There's a sense of, of lost intimacy with God. And if you're going to find rest, you, you've, you've got to admit those things. This is broken fellowship. So sin, sin has an earthly trouble, but it also has an eternal penalty. And we have to recognize this if we're going to find rest. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? This is a beggar asking God for help. He, he knows that there is an eternal penalty. Sin demands a just payment. The psalmist knows that God's wrath is deserved. But sometimes when we confess our sin, we gloss over the deserved justice of God and go running right to what we think is grace. And if we do that, how can grace be properly understood? This is why the church's view of grace today is is so shallow, because people's view of God's deserved justice is equally shallow. The psalmist would never pass over this reality. He tells God, you should mark iniquities. I know you could. I know that you keep records. God keeps records. And they are meticulous. Not one thought, not one word, not a whisper of evil, not a moment of insensitivity, a second of self-worship will go unnoticed. It is in the records. And the psalmist recognizes this fact, that if he doesn't confess and deal with the darkness of his sin, God will mark his iniquities and there will be no excuses and only one sin is enough to cast him into eternal judgment. Now, if you're a Christian, God has, God has taken away your spiritual blindness. But if you're going to grow in your understanding of grace in all of its depth, you must first sink deeper in your understanding of what you deserve. And if you sit under a teaching ministry that doesn't talk about this reality, you will miss the riches of His grace. If you spend your days excusing what you deserve, you will not know the riches of His grace. And if you spend your days with a shallow awareness of what could have happened to you, you will miss out on some of the sweetness of His grace. So this is where the psalmist begins. An overwhelming despair, the the sense of sinfulness, this sense of drowning. And he poses the question, if, if, if God should keep or guard, or if God should collect together like a miser and hoard and protect that list of my sins, then how could I stand? I couldn't. 
But the psalm doesn't end there. The psalmist recognizes the trouble that he's in. He sees his sin. He understands what Isaiah came to know when he saw the vision of the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up and the seraphim calling out to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the psalmist cries out to the Lord with a broken heart. And in verse 4, we notice the second thing, which is a shocking discovery. A shocking discovery. A strong contrast Really, that is difficult to pick up on in the English translations. He says there in verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness. Forgiveness. This is what Christ won for us on the cross. Forgiveness. Forgiveness in the Bible is, is described as the blotting out of the record of sin. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, which would be significant, right, if God is indeed keeping a list. Forgiveness is described as God making our scarlet sins as white as wool in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Forgiveness is described as God casting our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west in Psalm 103, verse 12. And forgiveness is also described as God burying our sins in the depths of the sea. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19. Prior to coming to Christ, we were an offense to God every day. We owed God an insurmountable debt with no hope in sight. But the Apostle Paul explained what happened when those of us who are Christians believed. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And even since coming to Christ, we offend him. We offend him by not always living every moment for his glory. And yet, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness with him. The psalmist knows the character of God. He knows the holiness of God. He knows that God has the right to judge and, and we have, that we have no ability to meet his standards and his demands. But he also knows that he is a pardoning God, that he stands ready to pardon. Psalm 86, verse 5, David said, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. That same verse, but in the New American Standard translation says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Listen, brothers and sisters, God was not reluctant. That is to say, the work of Christ did not inspire in God a desire to save sinners. Rather, God's saving love inspired the cross work of Christ. 
It is God's nature out of which came a Savior that reached out to us pathetic and sinful creatures. Now, God had a purpose in this, and the psalmist mentions it at the end of verse 4. He says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So what is God's purpose? That you would fear the awesomeness of his power and his awesomeness to forgive. Somebody said it this way, there is forgiveness in God enough to frighten us. That's it. Sin should frighten us. The unbeliever, the, 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 the person that's not saved, might, might be afraid that God will punish him or her. Uh, but the Christian is afraid that he might sin against God out of love. He's concerned about that. Like the woman who, who broke in on the gathering at, at uh, Simon the Pharisee's house, recorded for us in Luke chapter 7, who, the, 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 the sinner, the, the woman who, who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, who kept kissing Jesus' feet and anointing Jesus' feet with, with ointment, and was condemned by most. But speaking about her, Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, None fear the Lord like those who have experienced his forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. If the Lord were to execute justice upon all, there would be none left to fear Him. If all were under apprehension of His deserved wrath, despair would harden them against fearing Him. It is grace which leads the way to a holy regard of God and a fear of grieving Him. This is what the psalmist did. He stood in reverent, worshipful awe of a holy God who shred the sin file and granted forgiveness. The result of true forgiveness is never a lackadaisical attitude, but holy fear towards God. And divine pardon, rightly understood and humbly received, will always lead to a deep reverence for God. Those who've been forgiven are softened and humbled and overwhelmed by God's mercy. And they determine to never sin against such a great and fearful goodness. They do sin, but in their deepest hearts, they don't want to. And when they do, they hurry back to God for deliverance. A broken heart and a cry of despair lead to this. Because once you know the brokenness of your heart, then you'll know the shocking discovery of pardon. Some of you may see your sin for what it is, but rarely experience the freedom of forgiveness because you think that you can earn it. You can't. You can't earn it because it is rooted in the very character and the nature of God and through Christ and His work on the cross. 
Others of you rarely experience the sweetness of forgiveness because you don't think very often or very deeply about your sin. That is to say, if the greatness and the depth of your sin doesn't overwhelm you, then the saving work and grace of Christ on the cross will not inspire awe in you. Listen, we, we talk about sin all the time. Not because we are under the condemnation of it, but because we never, ever want to forget. Charles Spurgeon summed it up this way. Deep places beget deep devotion. So we began the psalmist in the depths, with him in the depths. Then we saw him absolutely blown away by God's willingness to forgive and to keep forgiving. And now we take note of his patient desire. His patient desire. Verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist has been forgiven. But now what does he do? Does he just go back to the way that he was living before? No, because forgiveness is is never a, a light thing. It's never a cavalier thing. So instead, he, he calmly and patiently waits on God and hopes in God's promise. He's not waiting for forgiveness because he's already found that. He is waiting for God himself. It is God whom he has offended by his sin, and it is fellowship with God that has been broken and needs to be restored. He's asked God for forgiveness, and God has promised to forgive, but now he wants the intimacy with God that should and will follow, and he is waiting for it. He is waiting in faith. And this is what we are called to do. We want the gladness back, right? We want the joy of salvation back. But these things don't always come to us immediately on the heels of our acknowledging and confessing sin. So we trust in the activity of God. Not panicking, not manipulating situations or manipulating people, not scurrying about and worrying, but going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide and expecting Him to do what he said he will do, but in his way and in his time. Focusing on him, relying on him, yearning for him, waiting for a full restoration by God of his divine power and peace. And as we wait, trusting in his word, which promises the full blessing of the Lord, with no fear of condemnation, Longing for our redemption to be complete, but waiting for it from the Lord. Not afraid, and not trying to make it happen, but resting in Him. Which brings us to the final step on this upward journey, the psalmist's public declaration. His public declaration, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord... For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I mean, 
Nothing could be further from the shut-in gloom and the uncertainty of the depth of verse 1 than this. Here the psalmist, having found forgiveness, turns to the community as a whole, to Israel, and exhorts them to put their hope in God as well. To have a strong confidence in God to forgive sin and restore hope. Because of God's nature. Because with the Lord is unfailing love and full redemption, plenteous redemption, redemption to the max. In other words, what this man found when he confessed his sin and sought forgiveness from God was not a once in a blue moon experience. It is something that anyone can discover because it is based on God's nature, which does not change. God is as forgiving now as he's ever been. And he will never go back on his promise. Well, this, this psalm is about that passage. It's about that pathway, that, that road from despair to hope. From fear to an unshakable trust. One of the problems today, especially in appreciating a psalm like this, is that many people do not have much awareness of sin. People live most of their lives with very little awareness of God, and where God has been abolished and awareness of sin is also inevitably lost and abolished because sin is defined only in relation to Him. We need to recover a a sense of sin We need to discover how desperate our condition is apart from God. We need to know that God's wrath isn't some outmoded theological construct, but a terrible and impending reality. We need to come out of our sad fantasy world and begin to tremble before the awesome holiness of our creator and judge. Which brings me to this. If you're here this morning and you've never turn from your sin and trusted Christ, maybe you've been looking around or maybe you've even looked inward. But if you haven't looked to Christ, you're only going to sink deeper and deeper into the black abyss until you are lost forever. What you need is God, who alone is able to pull you out, set your feet on a rock and establish your goings. And listen, you you may not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you if you've wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your co-workers may not forgive you. But there is one who will, and that one is God. Moses asked to see God and received this defining revelation of what God is like in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, it says, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There is forgiveness now, at this very moment. And it's for you, whoever you may be, whatever you've done, At this very moment, you can pass from death to life and know that your sins have been forgiven forever. There is forgiveness with God. 
You can't have it by working your your way there. You can't have it by sheer willpower. You can't have it by skimming over your sin and thinking that that God is going to, to wink at everything that you've done. You can't have it by thinking that when you face God, He's going to give you all of these second chances. You can only have it by faith. Jesus Christ satisfied God, and that is how God can forgive. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus took that death in our place, bearing sin's full punishment, so that God can forgive us freely and we can be freed from sin's penalty and power. We challenge you today to repent and believe on Him. And for those of us who have experienced God's forgiveness... What should it produce in our hearts? A loving fear of our Savior. A life of faithful obedience. But maybe that's not true of you in recent days. Maybe you've been overwhelmed with despair, weighed down with guilt, out of fellowship with God, hiding and covering your sins. What better time than right now to confess those things to the Lord? He knows. He loves you. He has made this promise to you that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, we thank you for this morning for the message of this psalm. We thank you for the blessing of forgiveness. How little we have, we have trusted in your, your promises, how little we have feared your warnings and your threats, how little we have obeyed your commands and responded rightly to your grace. This morning, Lord, we confess and we we, we mourn our backslidings, our, our, our failings and failures that are beyond counting. The times when we have ignored the pangs of our conscience, our lack of brokenness. Lord, we confess to you the many times that we have delighted in the things that are not your delight when we've cared more about pleasing men and fearing men than pleasing you and walking in the fear of the Lord. Though we are allowed to approach you, Lord, we are not unmindful of our sins. We do not deny our guilt, but we confess our sin and plead forgiveness. Would you draw us to yourself? Would you wean us from sin? May we love you as as you love us. Lord, may the cross make us more grateful for your mercies, more humble, more faithful. And Lord, just as the psalmist, may we proclaim to others as long as we live 
that you are a forgiving God. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.